Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. Here at EM Cases, we strive to bring you the best, broad, balanced EM knowledge to improve your practice. Now, what I'm about to say may come to you as a surprise. Recent evidence shows that there are, in fact, more types of AKI than just pre-renal. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Anton, we don't listen to EM cases for salacious rumors and unproven opinions. But hear me out, because apparently other specialties have been discussing nebulous concepts like renal disease for years. Which leads me to a couple of questions. How comfortable are we in the ED charting anything but pre-renal AKI? Since when did the term multifactorial AKI become synonymous with, I don't know why the creatinine's up? Turns out those brilliant, well-rested nephrologists have been onto something all along. So today we're gonna unravel the mysteries of the elusive kidney without getting too much into the weeds. I did not invite a nephrologist specifically for this reason. Instead, we've got two special guests who manage sick AKI patients on almost a daily basis and who both have an incredible knack for seeing the forest for the trees. Both from Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, Dr. Burke Tillman, intensivists who trained in both EM and intensive care, who you probably remember from our recent episodes on DKA and HHS, and from the recent EM quick hits on ARDS, you can follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at AnotherICUDoc. And Dr. Ed Etchels, master internist and educator who brought us his brilliant approach to hyponatremia in our now classic main episode, podcast number 60. Welcome back to EM Cases, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. Let's jump into our case. A 70-year-old woman presents to the ED with a five-week history of arthralgias and myalgias. She tells you that her urine's been dark for the last five days, and she's short of breath on minimal exertion, and also that she's noticed some ankle swelling. She denies flank pain or abdominal pain, chills or fever. There's no vomiting or diarrhea, and she's eating and drinking normally. She has a history of rheumatoid arthritis and has been stable on methotrexate in the last year. Her last creatinine from a year ago was normal. Her vitals are normal except for a blood pressure of 175 on 100, and her urinalysis shows 3-plus blood and 3-plus protein. Her creatinine comes back at 300 micromoles per liter. That's about 3.4 milligrams per deciliter for our U.S. listeners, with a urea of 20. Her potassium is also elevated at 5.7. CK is 300. CBC is normal, and extended lights are normal as well. So, Dr. Etchells, let's start with you. What are your initial general thoughts on this patient? What's your differential? Give us your initial impression, please. Thanks, Anton. Well, my initial impression is this patient is seriously ill and will need to be admitted to the hospital and will almost certainly need a nephrologist. 
My approach to acute kidney injury is very straightforward. I have four things you must do no matter what the final diagnosis is, and then four key questions to help guide you to initial management. Let's hear them. So the four things you have to do for every patient, no matter the final diagnosis is, you have to check their PVR, their post-void residual, to make sure they are emptying their bladder. If you can't do that with a bladder scan, uh, you're entitled to do an in-and-out catheterization or a Foley catheter. Please, please, please document how much urine comes out when you first insert the catheter, because that is the clue to an obstructive uropathy. Second is you have to get a urine dip on every patient, no matter what. We're looking for blood. We're looking for protein, because these are the red flag clues that the patient has glomerulonephritis, which is rare, but you cannot miss it. Next, monitor urine output. You need to know what the urine output is after the first four to six hours of management, whether you choose to give them diuretics or whether you choose to give them volume. And finally, don't expose them to additional nephrotoxins. I know we're going to get to this later, but don't give them intravenous contrast unless they really need it. Oh boy, we will get to that later. Just uh, sorry to interrupt you there. I will justify my opinion. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Don't give them non-steroidals like Toradol or ibuprofen. Don't give them ACE inhibitors. Don't give them angiotensin receptor blockers. Now is not the time to be giving those things to someone with a documented known severe acute kidney injury. Okay, so just the four things again are one, PVR, two, urine dip. And just to clarify that, is that urine dip and microscopy or just urine dip? Just do the urine dip. Okay, urine dip. And we'll get onto how the difference between the urine dip and the urine microscopy can give us some clues to some other diagnoses. And then the third thing was monitor the urine output. Be sure to get the volume right when you put that Foley in if you need to do that. And the fourth is to avoid nephrotoxins, which we will definitely talk about later on. Great. Those four things are always the right things to be doing, nephrotoxins notwithstanding. And then it gets to more of the initial diagnostic approach and initial management approach. So I ask four more questions. First is, is the patient's overall perfusion to all of their body organs adequate or inadequate? If the patient's in shock, you got to treat the shock. Whatever you do to help shock is going to help their kidneys. In this specific patient's case, I'm hearing she has adequate perfusion. I'm hearing hypertension. Next is, does the patient have pulmonary edema? If the patient has pulmonary edema, you have to deal with that. You're going to give them diuretics and you're going to try and establish urine flow that way. I am concerned that this patient is telling us that she has shortness of breath. So I'll want to hear a little bit more about that, but I'm very concerned about that. Next is, does the patient have peripheral edema? Well, she's already telling you she has peripheral edema. Very concerning. Likely the first step in management here will be to give the patient some diuretics and see what happens. And the last question is only relevant if the patient has no edema. So I'm very concerned that this patient has a renal cause because she's hypertensive. She has shortness of breath. She has peripheral edema. She has hyperkalemia, and she's telling you that her urine has changed color, which is a red flag for hematuria. So I think she's probably going to turn out to have glomerulonephritis or less likely acute tubular necrosis, and we'll just need to hear a little bit more information. All right, it's okay that we've already given it away. Oh, sorry. Ed, Ed you're just too smart, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the point is the history tells you what's wrong with the patient. You don't need a lot more fancy tests to know that you're in serious trouble here. 
I love this this knack again for being able to organize things into discrete questions. So the four questions you want to ask, are they perfusing adequately or not? If they're not, treat their shock. Do they have pulmonary edema is the second question. The third question is, do they have peripheral edema? And the fourth question is, if they have none of the above, then why aren't I giving fluid? That's a nice approach that we'll come back to throughout the podcast. Dr. Tillman, now you've got a different clinical experience being an intensivist. What do you think of this case? Certainly. So I think the first thing to highlight is it's important to have an approach like Dr. Etchell said. People don't come in and say, my kidneys hurt. AKI is sort of a nebulous disease. People complain of chest pain when they have a STEMI, a cough, when they have pneumonia. But you need to be aware that this disease exists and you want to look for these red flags, whether it be the change in urine suggesting hematuria, the peripheral edema, the pulmonary edema. As far as my approach to AKI, it's very similar in the sense that history is king. If I want to find out what's going on, it's going to be asking questions about potential triggers, be it shock or toxins or fluid loss. At the same point, though, a lot of my focus is on dealing with any potential life threats. So you've just told me I have a patient who has a K of 5.7. My first focus is going to be, how do we deal with that potassium? And is it causing any problems? So my approach is recognize there's acute kidney injury, ensure there's none of the key life threats, which we're going to be talking about later, but include things like acidosis, pulmonary edema, and hyperkalemia. If you see a key life threat, start treating it. And while you're stabilizing the patient, do exactly what Dr. Etchell said and figure out what's going on here so you can provide the right longer-term management, which may just be over the next four to six hours, or it could be days. All right, let's combine both Dr. Tillman and Dr. Etchell's approach to AKI into an EM cases simple approach. First, rule out immediate life threats. Hyper-K, get an ECG and a CRMK. Severe acidosis, get a VBG, plus hypoglycemia with a cap glucose, which we did forget to mention. Next, is the perfusion adequate or not? You figure this out on physical exam. If the perfusion is not adequate, treat for shock. So you're going to give inotropes and or crystalloid and or blood. Third, after rule out immediate life threats and is perfusion adequate or not is, is there pulmonary edema? that you figure out with physical exam, POCUS, and chest x-ray. Fourth, is there peripheral edema? And fifth, if there's none of the above, then consider giving fluids. Now we'll get into what to do with the patient with AKI who has adequate perfusion pulmonary edema with and without peripheral edema a bit later. Don't forget the four golden rules of AKI workup. Number one, PVR, a bladder scanner Foley. Number two, urine dip looking for blood and protein to suggest an intrarenal cause. Number three, monitor urine output, ideally with a Foley. And fourth, avoid nephrotoxins such as NSAIDs, ACEs, ARBs, and gentamicin. Then, once you've addressed the life threats, considered shock and edema and the four golden rules of workup, then you can start working out what we all learned in med school, pre-renal versus renal versus post-renal. Let's dig a little bit more into the history. Dr. Tillman, you had mentioned that really the history will help guide you in a lot of these patients and especially the triggers. What do you want to know in the history for the patient uh, who you're surprised 
comes back with the creatinine that's through the ceiling. Yeah, so I'd say this has happened to me more than once in the emergency department. I send off some blood work for sort of the undifferentiated patient, and the creatinine is magically 300, 400. And so I'm going to go back and talk to that patient. And I want to understand a bit more about their fluids and their perfusions and things that could hurt the kidney. But my first question actually tends to be asking the patient, are you peeing? Have you been peeing? What's your pee like? The next part is I want to know what's been happening with fluids. Are they taking fluids in or are they losing lots of fluids? When I think about that, that could be sweating if they've been vigorously exercising or running a marathon. It could be diarrhea. But there's also an inability to access fluids, especially in warmer climates when you have marginalized people who cannot get to fluids or air conditioning and have lots of sweat. So I want to know what's been happening with their fluid balance. The next thing is I'll talk to them about the medications they're taking. And I'm especially going to look for new start medications or changes in doses, as those are all triggers for a new renal event. Once I've gone through that, I'm going to start looking at things that are a bit less common but still out there. So one is rhabdo, which we're going to talk a fair bit about, I think, today. Most of the patients I see with rhabdo have been severe trauma, so it's a slam dunk. Their leg is crushed, their CK is 100,000, their kidneys don't work. That's pretty easy. Uh, Those people don't walk to the eMERGE, though. They're brought in by an ambulance. (laughs) So instead, I'm talking to them about have they been doing these marathons. I don't get why people do marathons. First of all, it sounds painful. It does bad things. But let's see if they're one of those people. Or maybe they've been working out intensely. But there's also medications that can cause lots of muscle turnover. So you want to discuss them about recreational drug use as well, any type of stimulants. So really, when I put this all together, I'm asking about how much fluid have they taken in or lost? How many medications have they taken in? or changed? Have they damaged their kidneys, either through exercise or drug use? Or are they in some form of shock that's meaning their kidneys aren't seeing the fluid they need? I want to echo the value of simply asking patients about their urinary function. There's only so many ways you can express renal dysfunction. Your urine either increases in volume, reduces in volume, changes in color, or is harder to get out of your bladder. So these are really significant clues for renal and post-renal causes of acute kidney injury. Yeah, one thing when it comes to the patient who's anurex, so they are not peeing. You know, in the emergency department, by far the most common cause of anuria is urinary retention, and that's usually quite obvious. But if we put aside the patients that are obviously in urinary retention, Those people who haven't peed in the last eight hours or 12 hours or 16 hours, what does that tell you about their kidney function? And the reason I'm asking is because my understanding is that it's actually not so simple to just assume that they're definitely in renal failure and have intrinsic, you know, a certain cause of of the renal failure. What does anuria mean to you? If a patient comes in and they haven't peed for hours... And they're not displaying those classic obstructive signs, because I agree, I think probably everyone who works eMERGE has seen their fair share of patients who come in obstructed. But if they're not coming in obstructed and haven't peed for a day or for half a day, that suggests that either this process has been going on for a while to get to anuria, and you're at an end state of a disease, 
And there's lots of reasons why people don't present early, but there can be quite high risk factors. And if they're not making pee, they're not clearing some of the toxins we worry about, which is really potassium in this standpoint. And they've gotten to a point where their intrinsic kidney function has become so debilitated, then you're worrying about an acid-base concern as well. So true anuria really worries me. Obstructive anuria is a problem, but hopefully their kidneys are still functioning, so they're not quite at that same point where their K's skyrocketed or their pH is in their boots. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricaid, the experts on scheduling systems. Things in emergency medicine have really been under strain and change for the last several months. COVID has exposed weaknesses in our scheduling systems and practices. When staff went off sick or on quarantine, we really saw how thin our rosters were and how every worker and every shift mattered. Whether your ED has lower than usual volumes or higher volumes because of COVID, your old scheduling templates just don't cut it. Through all of this, Metricaid has been agile and responsive. Metricaid actively participates in the day-to-day reactions to COVID on the workforce. They help modify schedules on the fly, adjusting hours of shifts and daily rosters, and making the most of limited resources. By taking over a lot of the new and complicated administrative burden on managing our schedules during the pandemic, they've shown that they are more than just a scheduling system. They become true partners in staff health, safety, and satisfaction. Metricade is ready to bring you on board anytime, and I'm confident they'll be able to help us through whatever uncertainty lies ahead. I want to talk a little bit about serum creatinine versus GFR versus creatinine clearance. Now, the serum creatinine is a quick and dirty estimate of renal function. We all know that. But if we really want to know how the kidneys are functioning, some people would say you need a GFR or a creatinine clearance. I'm not sure what the real right answer is here. Dr. Etchells, when is it essential for us to calculate the GFR or the creatinine clearance in the emergency department, if ever? That's a very tricky question, Anton. I would suggest to you that it's not possible for you to calculate the GFR in the emergency room because all of the calculations assume stable kidney function. And in most patients you assess, you can't make that assumption. So I would suggest to you that your best measures of kidney function are the urine output and the single serum creatinine that gives you a sense of how much renal reserve might exist. And if you're still worried about the patient six hours later, you have to repeat the creatinine again. The serum creatinine of 50 in an aneuric patient means you do not know what their GFR is at that moment. I I totally agree with this. Critically ill patients don't usually get that steady state. They're just varying too much in their function and their disease state. So understanding the GFR isn't designed for this situation. I use the creatinine and the urine output. Let's dig deeper into sorting out pre-renal causes of AKI. So while most patients we see in the ED with severe AKI will have a pre-renal cause from, say, septic shock, it's sometimes difficult to sort out whether the pre-renal cause is due to volume depletion or due to impaired forward flow. How do you sort out whether their pre-renal failure is due to volume depletion or impaired forward flow? That's a really challenging question. And I think the difficulty of this question is demonstrated by how many monitoring tools we've slowly gotten rid of. Like the SWAN GANs is gone in most states because 
it's hard to tell exactly what the perfusion status is and what's causing this poor perfusion. It's important, though, because the treatment we provide to this patient is going to be different. As we've talked about, a lot of these patients just need some fluid or relief of their obstruction, but we're focused on pre-renal. But not every patient needs fluid, and sometimes the fluids aren't going to help us. So I use a combination of techniques to try and aid in my decision-making of what's causing them to have impaired flow. Really, I'm trying to put them into a different set of boxes. One may be this is purely loss of volume. One is this is a more vasodilatory septic picture. And one is this is a pump flow problem where they're not getting the fluid to the kidneys. The first thing I'm going to do is touch the patient. I know when we have all our different modalities being CTs and ultrasounds, we may forget to touch people, but that's really important. And I'm examining their extremities to see if they're warm or cold. I find it really useful to help start guiding my decisions here. If someone is very, very, very cold, that's telling me either they've lost a lot of blood or fluids or they have a cardiogenic problem. Also, history is still king here. If they come in and they've been having a cough and a fever and they have an infiltrate on their chest x-ray, it's probably septic. If they've had crushing chest pain, sounds more cardiac. Adding on to this, you can use things like a point-of-care ultrasound. This is going to help inform your decision-making, although it's just one part of the puzzle. In the end, if I see a patient who is cold but they're not a trauma patient who's been bleeding out or someone who's been losing fluids and they've had access to taking in fluids and the ultrasound suggesting this heart's not working so well, that's going to point me towards this is a cardiogenic type picture. And then I'm going to think maybe taking fluids off or at the very least giving them an inotrope with some blood pressure support might help their kidneys. On the other hand, if this is a patient who is septic, Maybe they need a bit of fluid and some pressure support. Well, this is a trauma patient. I need to give them back what they lost. Is giving them back blood. That being said, most patients who make it to me in the ICU will get a fluid challenge. And I think of even our early goal-directed therapy trials in the control arm, the patients in Promise Arise, they were all getting 1.5 to 2.5 liters of fluid. So quite often, while we're trying to figure out Is this cardiogenic? Is this vasodilation? Is this loss of fluid? We're still going to be giving them fluid as we work through this. All right. So from a very practical perspective, if it's an obvious case of septic shock, we're going to be treating the septic shock and we just hope the kidneys will get better when we treat the septic shock. So we don't have to be thinking too much about the kidneys in that case. If it's an obvious case of volume loss, someone's had 50 episodes of diarrhea a day for 10 days then we know we're just going to be giving lots of fluids. The cardiogenic one's a little bit more difficult. Again, I like that just to remind yourself, you know, really examine the patient properly and the extremities. Use POCUS to help you out to see if it it could be cardiogenic shock. But either way, the bottom line is almost all these patients, you'll give a fluid challenge and then see what happens. Yep. And I think it strikes a lot of us as counterintuitive to see a critically ill patient and one of the first couple of medications we're going to order is a diuretic. So I do think that's the challenge with these cryogenic shock patients. It's a different space to put our heads in. 
I think the really important physical exam activity, once you've decided that the patient has adequate perfusion and is not in pulmonary edema, is to look for other clues to volume overload. So this is why my third key question is, is there peripheral edema? And I try and get my residents to not just check for ankle edema, but look for edema before the tibial tuberosities in the thighs. In our nursing home patients, please check around the greater trochanter or around their sacrum. Look for a pleural effusion. Look at their JVP, because if you see these things, it's almost always the right thing to do to give them some diuretic. If you only have leg edema, then you have to sit back and ask yourself, what is the cause of this edema? Sometimes the right thing is to give diuretics. Sometimes the right thing is to give fluids. The other key thing is make sure they don't have cirrhosis because cirrhosis with ascites and acute kidney injury I think is as difficult as cardiogenic shock. And those patients, you need to sit back and make a decision about how you're going to manage them. Even though they have edema, probably the right thing to do is what Dr. Tillman said, give them some crystalloid and perhaps some other specific treatments for impending hepatorenal syndrome. The last podcast we just released actually was on liver disease, and we talked about hepatorenal syndrome, and it is really in a category of its own, um, and I think it's it's a good way of approaching that particular one is a category on its own, because those patients will probably be getting albumin and things that we're not used to giving in the emergency department. So that's a little bit about the pre-renal causes. And again, it's just good to think about whether these patients are in AKI from volume loss, from vasodilatory shock, uh, or cardiogenic shock, and try and sort that out. POCUS might help you. Uh, most of them will get a fluid challenge. There's also the renal and post-renal causes. So one question that always comes up, and I get asked this question quite a lot when I'm referring patients with renal failure is, have they had any imaging? Now, we could send every patient with AKI NYD for imaging to rule out a post-renal cause, but that would be a colossal waste of resources and time. On the other hand, if they do have a post-renal cause, that will usually dictate the disposition. You know, they'd be admitted to urology instead of internal medicine, for example. So the question is, which patients with AKI require imaging in the ED to rule out a post-renal cause? That's a great question. I think it's important to start from a Bayesian perspective, which is if you take 100 patients with acute kidney injury in the emergency room, how many of them will have a final diagnosis of a post-renal cause? The answer is less than 5%. So your pretest probability is very low. Once you've done a basic history, and done a PVR, I think you can make that pretest probability even lower. So unless the patient has known to have a single kidney, you probably do not need to call the ultrasound technician in that night solely to answer the question, is this an obstructive cause of an acute kidney injury? Now, during the light of day, there's lots of really good reasons to get a renal ultrasound as part of the management of these patients. A simple example is you need to see if their kidneys can be biopsied. So you need to look at them and look at their position and look at their size. These are very useful things to do for the intermediate term management, but not in the emergency room. So I would say the role of urgent ultrasound to answer the question, is this an obstructive uropathy, 
is very limited. The only other time I think it's warranted is if you think the patient may have sepsis from an obstructed urinary tract. That's a good reason to do an ultrasound, but it's not really for the management of an acute kidney injury. It's for the management of sepsis. I like the idea of approaching this as what's the pre-test probability in the first place that they have an obstructive cause. And of those patients that do have an obstructive cause, most of them are obvious. Now, I, I know what some of the listeners out there are thinking, especially the ones who enjoy using POCUS in the emergency department. Point of care ultrasound can be used for all the things we've been talking about, actually, to assess perfusion, to assess volume status, but it can also be used to rule out a, uh, an obstructive cause. Uh, Dr. Tillman, what do you think the role of, of POCUS is in the emergency department for ruling out post-renal causes, obstructive causes of renal failure? I think if you're going to use POCUS for this specific cause, you need to have a good pretest probability and a good history. Because you're saying this is an obstructive cause that has either backed up all the way from the bladder, and I can't do a PVR because that's still going to be the easier exam to do, but they've still had enough forward flow to cause the hydronephrosis and everything else. So you're trying to find a disease that has ureteric obstruction without bladder distension. That does exist for sure. And it's not an overly difficult imaging to acquire or technical skill to do. You need to see a lot of these images to have an idea of what that bear claw picture is to say, you know what, this looks like hydronephrosis. And like any test, there is specificity and sensitivity to it. So if your pre-test probability is pretty low, then doing a test that doesn't have 100% sensitivity or specificity probably isn't going to change your final decision. Likewise, if your pretest probability is sky high, then doing a point-of-care ultrasound probably isn't going to give enough information for the intervention that's needed. Because I'm thinking this patient may need nephrostomy tubes or something else, and the clinician doing that procedure is going to need to see a picture themselves. So you having a point-of-care ultrasound, unless of course you can save it and give them the exact pictures they need, isn't going to change the patient's management either. So is it a screening tool you can use? Yes. Is it my first screening tool? No, I want to have a good history and a good pretest probability and make a decision from there. I was actually surprised to find out that the sensitivity and specificity of ultrasound for hydronephrosis in terms of point-of-care ultrasound done by emergency physicians is not as good as I, was, as I hoped. It's somewhere in the 70s, low 80s, based on the newest studies, and remember that we still do have the bladder scan and the PVR, uh, which can rule out most of the causes of obstructive acute renal failure. I want to add, there's one other patient population that I've developed a greater respect for over the past couple of years, and those are the people with intra-abdominal malignancies. I'm not so worried about them getting the image directly in the emergency department because they tend to come to the ICU with septic shock or something else. But these are the patients where getting advanced imaging of their abdomen has changed their acute management. So I think if you have a history that tells you of someone who has massive lymph nodes in their abdomen or large masses there and they're now not peeing, that's a patient who's likely going to benefit from advanced imaging to dictate how you're going to manage not only their AKI, but also the underlying cause of their AKI and their sepsis. Great point. 
the one other thing that I hear all the time from residents is uh, I've got this patient with renal colic and their creatinine is up. And so I think their creatinine is up because they have kidney stones that are blocking their urine and they've got an obstructive cause of AKI. And 99 times out of 100, it's because they're dry as a bone because they've been vomiting constantly for three days. And that AKI is almost always pre-renal. So I just think it's worth mentioning that it is pretty much impossible to get a, an obstructive AKI from a kidney stone unless it's a solitary kidney or you have bilateral obstructing kidney stones at the same time, which is extraordinarily rare. I totally agree with that. And I think it's why Dr. Etchells has said a couple times, and it's so important that we have to distinguish between the patient with a solitary kidney where these diseases are painful but may not put a patient into acute renal failure versus the solitary kidney where obstruction of one kidney can have dangerous consequences. I totally agree with everything that's being said, and I also agree with the respect for patients with abdominal malignancies. The patients who fool you are the patients who have diseases that can actually present with bilateral ureteric obstruction, like lymphoma, like metastatic testicular cancer, ovarian cancer. Prostate cancer is notorious for doing this because the cancer can invade both ureters at the ureteric trigone roughly at the same time. Retroperitoneal fibrosis is another classic. But I would suggest in all of those cases, the clue comes from principle number three for all patients, which is monitor urine output. If you've done your initial assessment, you've made the patient euvolemic, and you still have no urine output, and the bladder is empty, those patients have to have an ultrasound. But usually that takes four to eight hours to figure out, and most of the time you will get urine output by then. Fantastic point. All right, despite the limitations of POCUS that we just talked about, in that patient with a pretest probability that's not too high or not too low, and you're having difficulty with the history and physical, there probably is a role for POCUS. And to remind you of how to integrate POCUS into your AKI workup, here's Rob Samard, the creator of EM Cases POCUS Cases videos, and who you might remember from our PEA arrest episode with Weingart. Hey, Todd. Rob here from POCUS Cases. Let's talk about POCUS for acute kidney injury. To me, there are three types of acute kidney injury, pre-renal, renal, and post-renal. POCUS can help your evaluation, especially in the post-renal acute kidney injury. But first, let's talk about the different areas of the body you can ultrasound. Your biggest bang for your buck and highest yield efficient assessment is to look at the bladder. This can immediately tell you if this is a post-renal cause. The other beauty about bladder POCUS is that it is easy to do. It doesn't really matter if you are in transverse or longitudinal plane, as both will identify the bladder. But it is probably easiest to place the probe just cephalad to the pubic symphysis and do a generous sweep cephalad and caudad looking for urine in the bladder in the transverse plane. If you do not see any urine in the bladder, that means that either the patient just urinated and has a post-void residual of zero, or they are not making urine at all. If they're not making urine, then the diagnosis is likely pre-renal or renal. On the other hand, if there's a large amount of urine in the bladder, then you have your diagnosis. It is post-renal. 
With someone's in urinary retention, you can even see the dome of the bladder all the way up to the umbilicus. If the bladder is full, place a Foley in the bladder to determine the amount of urine, and you've temporarily solved the patient's problem and will hopefully start fixing their AKI. Next, look at each kidney with POCUS. To do a kidney POCUS, place the probe in the longitudinal plane over the flank and slide to find the kidney. You want the kidney centered in the middle of the screen and then sweep until the kidney disappears on both sides. The kidney is one of the easiest organs to identify because it has that classic double density of being whiter in the middle, grayer on the outsides. If the patient has a post-renal cause to their AKI, then they'll have hydronephrosis and hydroureter. This means you will see urine in the middle of the kidney and in the ureter. So usually the kidney is white in the middle, but when hydronephrosis is present, especially moderate or severe hydronephrosis, the middle of the kidney will be black. In pre-renal AKIs, the kidney is not receiving enough fluid to create urine. So the middle of the kidney will remain white and no hydronephrosis will be present. In renal causes of AKI, I'm not so certain that any POCUS expert will be able to confidently diagnose this as a cause. POCUS can also look for signs of volume overload or dehydration. In dehydration, which may lead to a pre-renal AKI, you would expect to see a flat IVC and a flat JVP. What? Did he just say JVP? Well, I know what you're thinking. JVP is so inaccurate and unreliable and you're no longer doing rounds as a medical student or on your internal medicine rotation, so why am I even bringing up the JVP? Well, let me tell you that JVP POCUS is one of the easiest POCUS assessments to do. And the taper point, which represents the height of the JVP, actually looks like a taper point. And studies show that interrelator reliability is quite good. All you need to do is to find the internal jugular vein in the longitudinal position when the patient is lying supine at 45 degrees. One technique is by measuring the location where the IJ tapers to the sternal notch and then adding five centimeters. This will represent the absolute height of the JVP. Normal is when the JVP is less than 6.5 centimeters according to one Canadian study. Alternatively, you can divide the neck into quadrants from the clavicle to the angle of the jaw. If the JVP tapers in the lower first quadrant, then the JVP is not elevated. If it tapers in the upper third or fourth quadrant, then it is elevated. As mentioned, this taper point is extremely obvious and the interrelator reliability is excellent. If your JVP is flat, you could assume that is the same as when the clinical JVP is flat and the patient may benefit from fluids. If the JVP is elevated, just like when it's clinically elevated, you can consider this patient as being volume overloaded. Volume status can also be assessed by looking at the IVC. In the epigastric area with the probe in the longitudinal direction, Identify the intrahepatic course of the IVC, and this can give you an idea if the patient is fluid deplete or fluid overloaded. In a patient with a pre-renal AKI, they may be volume deplete, and the IVC in this case would be flat, which is usually defined as less than one centimeter, and the IVC may obviously collapse, which means that during normal breathing, the walls of the IVC come together. As the patient receives fluids, the walls will distend and will no longer collapse as the patient becomes more hydrated. If the patient is fluid overloaded, 
the IVC will be quite distended and greater than two centimeters. And the IVC walls will not appear to collapse or they'll barely collapse when the patient breathes normally. Fluid overloaded patients may also start to third space and have pleural effusions, intra-abdominal fluid, or pericardial effusions, which can also be determined on POCUS. So in summary, in pre-renal and renal AKIs, POCUS can be helpful to determine that there is no urine being made by finding an empty bladder. Pre-renal AKI POCUS findings include absence of hydronephrosis, a flat IVC, and JVP, where a post-renal AKI findings include a distended bladder, hydrouretor, and hydronephrosis. If the patient's volume overloaded, you'd expect to find a distended IVC and an elevated JVP. And if a third spacing, you may even find pleural effusions, intradominal fluid, and pericardial effusions are also possible. So we've talked about pre-renal AKI. We've talked about post-renal AKI. Now let's move on to the renal causes of AKI. Now, usually this is when I start tuning out because there's this long, long list of very complicated causes of intrarenal AKI, about half of which I hardly remember what they're named and I have I certainly have no clue how to manage them. But what I'd like to try and do is simplify this by concentrating on the causes that we really need to do something about in the emergency department. But before we do that, we, we've alluded to this a little bit, but Dr. Etchells, if you could just say again, how do you distinguish between a pre-renal and a renal cause of AKI? And in particular, what I learned in medical school is that you look at the BUN to creatinine ratio and that if the BUN is 10 times higher than the creatinine, then it's likely to be a pre-renal cause. So it's really two questions is, is one is, is that true about the BUN creatinine ratio? And then two is, if it's not true, how do you sort out the pre-renal versus renal patient? Now I'm going to say something possibly outrageous, which is I don't really think the lab tests help you that much distinguishing pre-renal from renal. I think the history is crucial. I think the physical exam is crucial. And I think the urine dip is crucial. And once you have those things, the incremental value of a BUN to creatinine ratio is going to be pretty small. I can also tell you at Sunnybrook, we're not even supposed to order BUNs anymore, so I don't even get to calculate that ratio. I don't think those things are going to help you manage your patients very often. Take a good history, examine them as discussed, do a urine dip, because if it has blood and protein in it for no reason, you're dealing with a re renal cause until proven otherwise. That's how you tell the difference. What about things like uh, urine casts, urine osmolarity, urine electrolytes, the fractionated excreted sodium? There's, there's all these things that I've read about that are supposed to be able to help you sort out what the cause of renal failure is and, and the different possible causes of the intrarenal cause of failure. What value do any of these things have? So I'm going to suggest for an emergency room assessment, they have limited value other than the urine dipstick as discussed. So first one is urine microscopy. So this is the gold standard for diagnosing glomerulonephritis without doing a kidney biopsy, but only in the hands of trained experts. 
I'm not an expert at doing urine microscopy on spun urine samples. I would never pretend to be, and I don't think anyone else should either. It's for nephrologists to do. You should think of the urine dipstick as a screening test. If the patient has blood and protein in the urine, you should call a nephrologist for an opinion. They will do the spinning of the urine and the microscopy and tell you if they see casts. The fractional excretion of sodium and urea, I'm going to suggest that it has very limited to no role of the emergency room assessment of patients with AKI. All of those tests are designed to answer the question, is this patient pre-renal or renal? But they have so many caveats and exceptions that they're not going to help you make those initial management decisions. For example, the fractional excretion of sodium can be low in obstructive uropathy. It can be low in acute contrast nephropathy. It can be low in acute rhabdomyolysis with myoglobinuria and myoglobin tubular toxicity. So it's not going to help you in those situations. It's just going to confuse you. The urine sodium is extremely low in patients with heart failure, but it's also extremely low in patients with severe hypovolemia from diarrhea and bleeding. You have to examine the patients and take a history to figure that out. So I'm going to suggest to you not to do those things until you're talking to the internists or the nephrologists on the phone, and they ask you to do them because it will help them in subsequent management. The only time I think you could anticipate it is if you have a patient with cirrhosis and an AKI with no blood or uh, protein in their urine dip. In those cases, I think the fractional excretion of urea and sodium has some value, and uh, I would order those as a matter of routine. In other cases, I don't think they're that valuable. So I would completely agree with what was just said there. And it reminds me of a lesson that one of my colleagues taught me. When there are 12 tests to try and figure out the same thing, and no one can agree on what test to do, it's probably because all 12 tests suck. (laughs) (laughs) Bottom line is, aside from a urine dip to look for lots of blood and protein, which can lead you to an intrinsic cause of AKI, really the only time you might order a fractional excreted sodium is in the patient with hepatorenal syndrome or if your intensivist or internist ask you to. We now know what to do in terms of figuring out whether a patient might have an intrinsic cause of AKI. Dr. Etchells, if there were two or three intrinsic causes of renal failure that we really should know about that are relatively easy to diagnose in the emergency department and have timely, important management, what what would those two or three things be? Yeah, I think the most important message is, first, don't miss glomerulonephritis. Glomerulonephritis is a kidney-threatening and life-threatening disease. So as long as you recognize that a patient with the nephritic syndrome is a medical urgency to emergency, uh, you are solid. A patient with blood in their urine, protein in their urine, with high blood pressure and peripheral edema has the nephritic syndrome, and they need to be sorted out urgently. For example, in the patient you presented at the beginning of the podcast, she presents as a nephritic patient. 
she's got hypertension, she's got peripheral edema, and she has a change in urine color, which I'm pretty sure is going to turn out to be blood and protein in the urine. So I'd be very concerned that she has nephritic syndrome. And then the rest of it is, what else is wrong with the patient? So in her case, she told us that she had myalgias, she had sore joints, and she has shortness of breath. So she's telling you she's got a systemic disease. She's probably going to turn out to have a ANCA-positive vasculitis. Uh, she might turn out to have a circulating immune complex type disease like lupus. We need more details, but these are the things that crossed my mind. Obviously, any patient with nephritic syndrome and shortness of breath, we have to be worried about uh, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, the good pastor's syndrome, the anti-glomerular basement membrane syndromes. These are life-threatening syndromes that you just don't want to miss. New hypertension and AKI give these patients a closer look because something weird's going on to have those two linked together. All right. So the nephritic syndrome, high blood pressure, hematuria, proteinuria, this is a serious disease that requires some very close attention. Might need their blood pressure lowered. They need an internist. They need to be admitted to hospital. The other intrinsic disease that we haven't mentioned yet is rhabdomyolysis. This is one of those true emergencies uh, that I think we all really need to know about as emergency physicians. Now, even defining rhabdo is very controversial, and there's little in the way of evidence-based solid treatments for it, unfortunately. Nonetheless, there are a couple key questions that you need to ask yourself when you're faced with, say, a marathon runner that comes in with muscle pain and muscle weakness and vomiting and, and brown urine. So the first question is, Dr. Tillman, what CK value would trigger you to consider the diagnosis of rhabdomyolysis? And which CK value would trigger you to treat emergently for rhabdomyolysis? Or are you looking at other things besides the, the CK? Again, history is king here because that's what's going to drive you to order the CK value. Because if you haven't checked their CK, you're going to miss the diagnosis. The classic example, I agree, is the marathon runner coming in, sort of that younger adult. They may have muscle pain. They may have generalized fatigue, but that's going to tell you to order the CK. When I see a CK level that's greater than just the normal value, that tells me this patient at least needs to do some hydrating. If you look at some evidence, a CK above 5,000, that's starting to get a 50% chance of progressing to AKI. But there's also some scores out there like the McCann to help your pretest probability on your gestalt. And as those points get higher up there, then you can say, you know, even though the CK seems okay, it's 2,000, I'm not that worried. But if their score is six, then you're probably pretty worried. On the flip side, let's say their CK is 4,000, that makes you uncomfortable, but their score is two. Well, maybe you can orally rehydrate them and go forward. So that's the first point I try and decide. Is this someone who can be orally hydrated or can have IV hydration? Once the CK gets above 5,000, I'm thinking you're going to need IV hydration. If they're between 1,000 to 5,000, I want to use some additional tests to try and help me figure this out. And I also want to talk to the patient to see if there's someone who's going to be able to aggressively rehydrate themselves. The last part of this is some patients can present pretty early. 
I know there's many emergency physicians who do medical care at marathons themselves. So that means you're getting the patient basically right when they drop. And there can still be muscle breakdown. I also think of my patients who have crushed limbs. Their initial CK, 20,000, high. Their CK come tomorrow is 100,000. So have an idea of where they are in their course. Because sometimes the CK may be a completely acceptable level. It may be 500. And I tell these people, you know what? Hydrate, take care of yourself, rest, don't start stressing yourself. But let's repeat this blood work in 8 to 12 hours, either through an urgent care if they have access or coming back to the emergency department if we need to. Again, history is very important. Uh, we want to try and elucidate if they have risk factors for rhabdo in the first place. So have they had trauma or do they have compartment syndrome or a crush injury? Have they had some sort of extreme exertion like a marathon runner? Are they hyperthermic? Were they found down? Uh, these are the kinds of patients that we might want to consider ordering a CK on. And then their symptoms, you know, do they have muscle pain? Do they have muscle weakness? Are they vomiting? Do they have the dark urine? They don't all have that, but certainly if they have any of those, you want to be thinking about ordering a CK. The other thing that comes up when you get a high CK, whether it's worth doing a myoglobin or not, whether that is of any value. And then in this uh, McMahon score, there's calcium and phosphate and bicarb, and there's a few different things that we look at that can help prognosticate these patients. What else should we be looking at? I mean, first, is it worth looking at a myoglobin? I find checking a myoglobin is not very helpful. The product breaks down faster, so you're likely to miss it. Anton, one issue in the diagnosis of rhabdomyolysis and renal failure that often comes up is the saying that if you dip the urine and it's positive for blood, but when you look under the microscope and you see no blood, this is a clue to rhabdomyolysis. I consider this medical trivia of historical interest only because it has very little practical application in today's emergency departments because we don't have a microscope to look at urine and we're not very good at it. So how are you going to do that in an urgent case? You're going to manage that patient based on other features like the CK, like the history, like the McMahon score. Excellent. So Again, with rhabdo, the history is key. The risk factors and the symptoms will usually trigger you to do a CK. Urine myoglobin, not so useful. In terms of the level of the CK, you really want to kind of divide it into those patients that are already over 5,000, those patients that are 1,000 to 5,000, and those patients that are under 5,000. And just remember that things change over time. Uh, and so repeating the CK a few hours later can be valuable in seeing which direction they're heading in. And then the other thing to know is this uh, McMahon score, which does include calcium, phosphate, and bicarb to help determine the likelihood of the patient needing dialysis. That's something that we don't need to know like the back of our hands, but I think it's worth at least ordering the calcium phosphate and a VBG just to see where the patients are and whether they might be heading for something like dialysis. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the treatment. Let's say someone's in obvious rhabdo, their CK is 20,000, and they do have AKI. How are you going to treat this patient in terms of how much fluid are you going to give? Are you going to give bicarb? What kind of fluid are you going to give? Do these patients need dialysis? Which patients need dialysis? Sure. So 
I'm going to give a lot of fluid usually. You'll hear talks about alkalizing the urine and can you do that. I'm going to start with Ringer's lactate. There's a couple reasons. First of all, I'm not giving them routine bicarb to alkalize the urine because it's really hard to alkalize someone's urine. You have to realize that potassium and hydrogen are constantly going to be changing. So to alkalize urine, you have to crank up their potassium. It's a patient with AKI. You're really worried about a high potassium. It's just something that we're not very successful at doing. So I'm not going to chase that target. Instead, I'm giving them a balanced crystalloid being ringers. Why am I using ringers instead of normal saline? Because people always ask, aren't you just giving them potassium? First of all, the relative concentration in a bag of ringers lactate is quite low. There's 5.4 millimoles per liter. Secondly, the pH of ringers lactate is closer to our pH as opposed to normal saline. So if you're giving someone normal saline, you're giving them a more acidotic solution. As you make them more acidotic, you're actually going to increase a patient's circulating potassium because potassium moves out of cells in an acidotic environment. So I'm primarily using Ringer's lactate. What am I using as a volume measure for how much I give? I'm looking at their urine output. So like most renal failure, they're getting fluids in a Foley. But when I look at their urine output, I am looking for a higher output than usual. I would think in a regular patient, I'm happy with 0.5 cc's per kilo per hour. In a patient with rhabdo, where we're thinking of the idea of flushing the kidney, or however else you want to sort of mentally picture it in your mind, I'm aiming for a higher urine output. So usually 2 cc's per kilo per hour. Sometimes I'm happy with 1 to 2. Because as you give these high volumes of fluid, some patients may not tolerate it, and now you're balancing the risk of putting them into pulmonary edema while trying to protect their kidneys from their rhabdomyolysis. That being said, my common therapy, give them a liters of ringers, put them on a fairly high rate of infusion, so about 150 cc's an hour, and have hourly monitoring of their ins and outs. Anton, you also asked, when do we start dialysis in these patients? There's nothing really special about a rhabdo patient that says you need to start dialysis at a different time than another patient. So I look for the same criteria, which you can use your AEIOU mnemonic. Basically, you're looking for acidemia, electrolytes. Shouldn't be another intoxication here, hopefully, or else you're dealing with two problems, although potentially. Overload, but the overload has to be causing a lot of problems. And also, uremia shouldn't be the issue either. This is an acute kidney injury with not a pre-existing chronic disease, so they shouldn't start developing a uremic pericarditis or uremic encephalopathy at the start of their rhabdo. So just to review there, your fluid of choice for rhabdo patients is Ringer's lactate, and you're going to shoot for a urine output that's higher than usual, so you want to make sure you have that fully in the high urine output, something like two cc's per kilogram per hour. You're going to watch for fluid overload because you are giving this patient lots of fluid and they might have other reasons that they'd go into overload easily. Do the ins and outs. Um, and then in terms of dialysis, the easiest way to think about it is that it's the same indications for anyone with AKI for the patient who has rhabdomyolysis. And a neat way of thinking about the indications for dialysis are the AEIOU mnemonic, which we'll have in the show notes. Before we leave rhabdomyolysis, though, I just want to ask you, 
you were saying, you know, some of those patients that you might send home that have a CK of a thousand and, you know, you give them a whole long list of, of discharge instructions. When do you know that a patient is safe to go home after rhabdo? So I think this is definitely a challenging decision for us to make. If you're starting to administer high volume IV fluids, then it has to be the case you talked about where they're in your, your emergency department for half a day, basically. So if I'm bolusing you with high volume fluids, you're getting two, three liters of fluid, probably not safe to go home. That being said, if you've had one liter of fluid and your CK has peaked and is coming down, without ongoing muscle damage, it's hard to crank your CK back up. So that would be one of the things I'm going to look for is if your CK has hit its peak, it's coming down, you're tolerating oral fluids, and you're a patient who has access to care if things get worse and can return to the emergency department, that's who I'm going to look at sending home. If you've never needed IV fluids, so you're the patient who's had a CK of 900 and you're drinking well, I'm also going to send that patient home, again with good follow-up instructions, especially depending on is this within the first hour of their insult or are they three days out and they're probably clearing all their CK already. I think the patients who can be sent home have a known transient or reversible cause of rhabdomyolysis. If you don't know why their CK is high, we'd be happy to see that patient because we got to figure it out. The CK ideally is less than 5,000 and going down, normal urine output, and maintaining euvolemic status. Those patients can be discharged. We'd be happy to see them in our rapid referral clinic in the next day or two for follow-up. Good point. Good point. Yeah, one of the things that once upon a time, many years ago, I was a family doctor that I used to see occasionally and that always a question came up was uh, patients taking statins. That can increase your CK, which I only knew because I was a family doctor and a lot of my patients were on statins. And this actually sometimes does come up in the emergency department is that a patient will be sent in on a statin and their CK is, say, 500. Dr. Etchells, do you have any sort of guide in terms of when you need to stop a statin? How high is too high of a CK of someone who is on a statin? Um, you know, obviously, if someone comes in in full-blown rhabdo and they're on a statin, you're going to stop the statin. But in terms of those patients who are, who are almost for sure going home and their CK is a few hundred, any words of wisdom when it comes to statins? A couple of things. The first is I'm going to bet that that patient with a CK of 500 had it checked because they weren't feeling well. They were probably having uh, myositis or myalgias. So the patient's overall health might be improved if they were on a lower dose of statin. So I think as an emergency room doctor, you're well within your rights to advise them to hold it for a couple of days and to have the entire situation reassessed by their outpatient physicians because things could get worse. They could especially get worse if the patient's renal function is deteriorated because most statins are renally excreted. And they could also be getting worse because the patient's being prescribed a new drug which has a drug-drug interaction. Even though that patient with a CK of 500 doesn't need to be admitted, I think you're well within your rights to tell them to hold it for now and to have all of their drugs reviewed by their outpatient doctors and pharmacists. They may be well off on a lower dose of a statin in a couple of days. Yeah, de definitely developed respect for statins in the ICU. I've seen, I've seen some interesting cases come in. I've, I've seen full-blown rhabdo there. All right, let's talk about rhabdo. The first question was when to do a CK. 
Well, if they have any one risk factor for rhabdo, so trauma, compartment syndrome, or crush injury, extreme exertion, hyperthermia, or they're found down, that's when you want to get a CK. And or if they have any one symptom of rhabdomyolysis, muscle pain, muscle weakness, vomiting that can't be explained, or dark urine, any of those symptoms, get a CK. Once you've got your CK, you should divide patients into CKs that are below 1,000, between 1,000 and 5,000, and above 5,000. Those with a CK below 1,000, most of them can be treated just with oral fluids. For the CK between 1,000 and 5,000, that usually requires IV ringer's lactate, and you need to trend the CK and the creatinine, which is especially important to determine disposition. You'll also want to look at the McMahon score there. And then for patients with a CK over 5,000, 50% of those progress to AKI. So they usually need IV ringer's lactate and admission. They might need dialysis if their McMahon score is above 6. Again, it's important to trend the CK to help guide treatment and disposition. And what about the value of urine myoglobin? Well, there's a limited role for urine myoglobin because the half-life is only 2 to 3 hours. And so a negative result after four to six hours post-insult may be misleading. In contrast, the CK peaks at about 24 to 72 hours after the initial insult. So that may be low or normal in the first few hours. Again, it's really important to trend the CK over time. In terms of what other blood work to get, it's basically the blood work for the McMahon score. So make sure you get a calcium, a phosphate, and a bicarb, because that can help prognosticate. Ringer's lactate is the fluid of choice for rhabdomyolysis as it has relatively neutral effects on the acid-base status and it may reduce the risk of further AKI compared to normal saline. Consider a one-liter bolus up front followed by 150 mils per hour and aim for a urine output of at least 200 cc's per hour. Bicarb should not be used routinely in severe rhabdo but it should be considered at least in patients with severe uremic acidosis based on the BICAR ICU trial, but probably best reserved for the ICU. Indications for dialysis in rhabdomyolysis are exactly the same as those for any AKI patient. Use the mnemonic AEIOU, A for acidemia, E for electrolyte abnormalities like hyper-K, I for ingestion, nephrotoxic drug ingestion, O for overload, so volume overload resulting in respiratory failure. U for uremia with things like bleeding, pericarditis, or encephalopathy. The next question was, who can you send home with rhabdomyolysis? Patients are probably safe to be discharged home if the underlying cause is identified and reversed. If their CK is under 1,000 and it's downtrending, their creatinine has normalized, and the patient is reliable to continue fluids orally at home. So all in all, with rhabdo, if the history is suggestive, get a CK. If it's greater than 1,000, treat for rhabdo with ringers. Order up repeat CK, calcium, phosphate, and VBG to get a sense of their likelihood of requiring dialysis and get them admitted. We're almost finished with the intrarenal causes, and whether you consider this a cause or not, it is time to talk about CT contrast as a cause of, quote, contrast-induced nephropathy. Now, just to give Dr. Etchells a little bit of a background here, 
from my perspective, we did a one of our Journal Jam podcasts on this exact topic with Justin Morgenstern and Rory Spiegel and Lauren Westifer, who had written a paper on this. And we concluded there that there really is no good evidence that CTIV contrast causes AKI. And the important part is that if you need IV contrast to diagnose a serious life-threatening diagnosis or life-altering diagnosis, then forget about the creatinine and just go ahead and get the CT with contrast that you need. Now, this is great that we have some differing opinions here. So, Dr. Etchells, let it rip. Let let us know why (laughs) you believe or do not believe in contrast-induced nephropathy. So, I'm familiar with those papers. I actually agree with the two things you said, but I would also add that you do not give contrast without it being absolutely necessary in someone who is in the throes of an acute kidney injury. That's very different from saying if you take a bunch of septic patients and try and figure out if the acute kidney injury is caused by the sepsis or the hypovolemia causing acute tubular necrosis or the contrast they got to work up their sepsis or the ACE inhibitor or the NSAID that they took just before they came in the hospital, which one of those things caused the acute kidney injury, I totally get that you can't tell most of the time. But that's not the same as saying it's okay to give contrast if you have a patient like our patient that you presented at the beginning of this podcast with a severe acute kidney injury whose creatinine is now 300 and they're not making very much urine and they're in danger of needing to be on dialysis in a day, you should not give that patient an additional renal insult called IV contrast unless there's a really, really good reason. So the challenge here is we can't really randomize healthy people or (laughs) randomize sick people to get IV contrast and see what happens. So there's been these excellent methodologies utilized to try and tease out the attributal risk. And that's really what we're talking about here is these people have AKI and people with AKI sometimes get sicker. Is this because of the contrast, because of the disease that drove the contrast? And that's what we're debating. But I think what is important is if there is a disease that is causing harm to this patient and leading them being so sick, and you can't diagnose without contrast, then yeah, I don't care what the creatinine is because if I don't diagnose and treat them, they're going to get worse and they'll end up on dialysis or they'll end up dying from their disease. Conversely, if their creatinine is 300, I'm not going to give someone contrast for no reason. I don't need to start hunting down the random nodule not something you usually need to hunt down as an emergency physician or during their acute hospital stay anyways. So I think it's more important to ration the utilization of contrast scans and understand when you need contrast to make that diagnosis, as opposed to saying, you know what, All right, I can't use contrast because the creatinine is high. Understand why you're giving the contrast, give contrast when you need it. Do not let creatinines stop you from doing the right investigation. All right, now I'm going to put all this AKI stuff together and drive it all home for you with the EM Cases stepwise approach to AKI in the ED. Step number one is to rule out the two immediate life threats. Those are hyper-K and severe acidosis. So for hyper-K, get an ECG and get electrolytes off your blood gas. For severe acidosis, get a blood gas. 
Step number two, after ruling out the two immediate life threats, are assess for adequate perfusion and ask yourself if they're in shock. If they're in shock, do what you do best in shock patients. Step number three, after ruling out the two immediate life threats and assessing for adequate perfusion and shock, is to assess for pulmonary and peripheral edema. Now, we're going to talk about this in detail in part two of this two-part series on AKI, but I'll give it to you here just to plant the seed. So as we talked about, assess the JVP, IVC, and for pulmonary edema on the chest with POCUS, and look for peripheral edema. Don't forget to check for pretibial edema and sacral edema. And if there's no evidence of volume overload at all, no edema anywhere, then provide a fluid challenge. Now, this is the new part that we're going to get into detail in part two that, again, I'm going to plant the seed here. If there is AKI with adequate perfusion and pulmonary edema, then go ahead and give furosemide, one milligram per kilogram IV, or 1.5 milligrams per kilogram IV if they're already on furosemide. In this category of adequate perfusion with pulmonary edema, think about the possibility of pulmonary renal syndromes other than CHF. Think about things like anti-GBM disease, ANCA-associated vasculitis, circulating immune complex syndromes like lupus. What would be some of the clues? So you need to ask yourself, does this patient have inflammatory arthritis? Do they have purpura? Do they have Raynaud's? Do they have mononeuritis multiplex, uveitis, or, or Sicca syndrome? If any of these things are popping up, you need to think about these weirder pulmonary renal syndromes other than CHF and speak to your internist. All right, so that's the category of AKI with adequate perfusion and with pulmonary edema. Now, what about the patient with AKI with adequate perfusion and peripheral edema, but not pulmonary edema? In these patients, you also want to consider giving furosemide. And if there's no improvement to renal function, think about hypovolemia or the pre-renal causes despite having peripheral edema. And you need to think about a specific group of syndromes. This is when you want to get a serum albumin, because if it's low... Whatever is causing that low albumin might be the cause of AKI, and you need to treat that underlying cause. And specifically, if it's hepatorenal syndrome that you're entertaining, then consider giving IV albumin. In terms of the other things to think about that cause peripheral edema, there's the very common venous insufficiency or lymphedema, there's drug-induced edema, and there's severe myxedema. So for the drug-induced edema, you can give crystalloid for their AKI and reassess the offending drug. For severe myxedema, of course, you want to treat with L-thyroxin. Now, let's move on with our five-step approach to AKI. Step four is the golden rules of AKI workup, which Dr. Etchell so eloquently described earlier in this cast. Number one is be sure to measure a post-void residual, either with a bladder scan or a Foley. Number two is get a urine dip to look for protein and blood that might be suggestive of a nephritic syndrome. Number three is monitor urine output, ideally with a Foley. And number four is to avoid nephrotoxins like NSAIDs, ACEs, ARBs, gentamicin, etc. All right, number five and the last step in our five-step approach to AKI is the imaging considerations. 
So rather than imaging everyone with AKI who you don't know what's going on, consider imaging in those patients who do not improve with a fluid challenge, that makes pre-renal less likely, who have a normal urine dip, that makes intrarenal causes less likely, have obvious hydronephrosis on POCUS, but also have a post-void residual that's either non-existent or very small, like under 100 mils, that makes BPH less likely. These patients do warrant further imaging as they might have a rare post-renal cause of AKI, like bilateral ureteric obstruction from metastatic cancer, lymphoma, or a kidney stone with a solitary kidney. In part two, we're going to cover the entire treatment of AKI. We're going to look into more details on the indications for dialysis. And we're going to talk about some of the controversies around medications like vancomycin and which vasopressors to use in the really sick AKI patients. So until next time, I just want to remind you about our public health responsibilities as physicians in these difficult times of the COVID pandemic. As long as the COVID pandemic is here, please tell everyone you know to minimize meeting people indoors whenever possible If they have to meet indoors to wear a mask at all times, do this physical distancing thing with everyone except household contacts and seek help if you're feeling down. Again, we all have a public health role to play in this pandemic. Stay safe, everyone. And thanks so much for taking the time to listen to EM Cases. (laughs) 